wake up. Isn't that a, a you know exhortation to the church today? We've got to wake up. We've got to wake up and understand that we are living in a time or in the time of the end. The Christ Messiah is soon to return. The days are getting evil. The Antichrist is rising and he's deceiving the masses and the church is asleep. The church is, hasn't, isn't, hasn't got an influence in our culture anymore. The church has just about zero influence. Among Christians, it has an influence if the Christians, you know, are there and in Christ. But to the most part, you know, we're, we're losing so many people to Satan. Satan is winning the victory. He's, in this, Jesus has got the victory, but he is winning souls. When I said victory, the souls that he's winning, he's taking to hell. In, in the massive amounts. We know personally so many people that have passed away not knowing Jesus Christ. You know, could you put your hand up and say, oh, I know people that have passed away without knowing Jesus? Yeah. Is that, you know, that should cut us to pieces. You know, there's a soul in hell. And, and I've always said, if you could just picture that one person in hell for eternity, well, it's hell and then a lake of burning sulfur because hell gets thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. So hell for now, burning sulfur forever. If you could picture that and you could really take it to heart, you would be on your knees day and night praying for that person. Uh, if you could go back in time, you would have gone back and you would have, as you started as a Christian, you would have just prayed nonstop for that person for, the whole, for your whole life. If you could get a, a real grasp of what that person's going to have to undergo forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and it will never ever cease. It will never stop. Do you know what I'm saying? We've got to be able to picture that as Christians. We've got to allow God to wake us up. We can't cut that off. We can't say, no, God, I don't want to think about these things. No, God, I don't want to come to grips with my responsibility in prayer, my responsibility with the Word, my responsibility with others, and my responsibility with my own life and the things that I do. Because Jesus is going to come one day and He's going to reveal to you everything that you've ever done, everything that you've ever said, everything that you've ever thought. And all these things will, you know, you would wish at that time that you could just go back, and I've said this many times, that you could go back in time and live your life over again and get it right. But the thing is, is we've got this now. We can get it right. And this is the blessing of this great book. But we, we've got to not, you know, uh, wash over things. We've got to not ignore things. Right. So, turn in your Bibles to Revelation uh, chapter 2. And this is part 24 of our Revelation series. And uh, Lord, I just pray right now that your spirit is here, that your spirit moves uh, among us, um, that your spirit will give great discernment to everyone in this congregation. And you'll give me also great discernment to uh, preach on this uh, most important subject. Lord, as when we're preaching on uh, the book of Revelation, there's blessings for those who read it, but there's curses for those that add or subtract. And so, Lord... Uh, I tread very carefully with, with, this, uh, with this book, Lord, and I ask that you would help me to tread carefully so that those curses spoken of in the, in the book of Revelation don't fall on me for preaching uh, lies or deceptions, Lord. So uh, I just pray for your spirit right now to move in us all by the power of God. 
Amen. Amen. Now, uh, the overview of the churches, as we talked about last week, each letter begins with a description of the one writing the letter, deeds, their commendations and their rebukes, and a number of other things, uh, and the blessings that come to the overcomer. They're in, the, in the church, there were two churches which were commended, which were Smyrna and Philadelphia. They were, in a sense, the, the whole church commended. They didn't have much bad to say at all. He didn't have, Jesus didn't have anything bad, really, to say about those two churches. Not so with Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Laodicea. And uh, I think of, the, of all of them, Laodicea got the biggest rebuke of all. And uh, hopefully we'll get to Laodicea today. So that's my goal, is to try to get to the church of Laodicea. We'll see how we go. We're not going to rush, though. I know your deeds, Thyatira. So let's turn to, and this is pretty small if you can see that. There was a, this is quite a long epistle. It's probably the longest, I think, of all the epistles. Chapter 2, uh, verse 19. And it says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So they're a very busy church. They're an active church doing a lot of really, really good things, a lot of good deeds, um, and they were persevering and, and so on. Uh, sort of like Ephesus, except Ephesus had lost their first love. Uh, they're not quite at that point. But nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, just a little thing about Thyatira. Thyatira was in an area where um, that there was all these trade guilds. And uh, if you wanted to get work of any kind in Thyatira, you had to join a guild. And those guilds would be places of idol worship and animal sacrifice and, and, and things like that. So um, if, if you wanted to work there, you would have to compromise to some degree to be part of a guild. And so they were obviously a compromised church. And then you read about their rebuke here. It says, nevertheless, I've this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the children will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I repay, or I will repay each of you according to your deeds. And he's talking to a church. He says, according to this church, he's saying, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. In a sense, every Christian, Jesus will repay according to their deeds. So if a Christian goes very, very wayward, as a loving father, he will do things or allow things to happen to that Christian to bring them back onto the path of life. Because if they're going wayward, he doesn't want them to stray to the point where they become apostate. He wants to bring them and keep them on the path of life. Now, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, that's Jezebel's teaching, and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. So not the whole church was corrupt. The whole church wasn't going after these things. There were some that were faithful. 
So they were commended for their love and their faith and their service and their perseverance. They tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. We'll talk about Jezebel in just a second. And that was what they were rebuked for, for tolerating someone who brought, who brought a corruption or a, a, quite a lot of corruption into the church. He revealed that they were letting the sexual immorality and corrupted food. So what he's basically saying, because these guys wouldn't probably do it on a, in a public setting. They probably wouldn't have done it Sunday morning. But he knew the secrets. You know, when it was, I think, Nehemiah or I can't remember who the prophet was that went and looked into the temple. Maybe it was Ezekiel. Went into the temple and he, he took Ezekiel. I believe it was, right into the temple, into back rooms and saw idol worship taking place and lots of immoral practices. It was done in dark places. It was done in secret. And, and this is the sort of thing he says, I've seen that you've been led into sexual morality. And I can imagine when they got this letter and it was read to the church and Jesus reveals this, they would have been going, you know, stirring in their seats. You can imagine, how does he know that's going on? Because we haven't made a public knowledge in this church. Um, and eating corrupted foods that were sacrificed to idols. They were warned that they would cast her and her partners on a bed of suffering. We'll talk about that as well. They were exhorted those who associated with her to repent of her ways. So that was the exhortation uh, to those who associated with Jezebel and um, Jezebel herself. And that he will strike the children of Jezebel dead. He said that he will use them as an example to the churches. That Christ sees all and will repay each according to their deeds. So he sees all. Christ sees all and he repays everyone. And he, this church is an example to all the churches of what he will do to those who practice these immoral things. The instruction was no burden to those who don't follow her teaching. So he didn't want to say, well, if you're not doing any of that, it's, this is not related to you. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Those that hadn't learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. And I like how Jesus said that because Jesus is the creator of the universe and he's saying, you think you know knowledge because you know Satan's deep secrets. You know, like, whoopee-doo, big secrets he's got. You should know my deep secrets. What are you looking into his deep secrets for? When you can learn the deep secrets of Almighty God, you know, so so great are his secrets. About things that we don't know, like how he created the DNA. Not what the DNA does, that's what baffles the world, is, you know, what does DNA do? How does it all work and all that? They're just baffled by the, the way it works. But I'm, I'm wanting to know one day, and I don't know if my mind will be able to cope in this form, how did he create it? <laughs> how did he make that? To do all these wonderful things. That's a, the greatest secret. Like, no man can uncover that. Satan cannot uncover that. Because if he could uncover that, then he could be a creator also. But he's not a creator. He's a copycat. And even if he did cre create it from copying, and he's just a copycat. You know what I'm saying? Who was Jezebel? Old Testament Jezebel was the wife of Israel's king Ahab. Who's, who's read about Jezebel in the Bible? Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting story. She ruled Israel through her weak husband, King Ahab. He ordered, or she ordered, the extermination of all the prophets of the Lord. And her arch enemy at that time was the great prophet Elijah. And you can read about Jezebel in 1 Kings 16, 29 onwards. Now, Elijah, this, 
There was a story that he killed 450 of the prophets of Baal by sword. And then the next day he found out that Jezebel was after him and he ran. And I'm thinking, you just beat 450 prophets. Why are you running from a woman? It wasn't that. It wasn't the fact that he, she's a woman. It was the fact that the spirit that was operating in her put the fear, put fear of Satan in Elijah and Elijah fled. That's the kind of power this woman yielded. She was a powerful woman and she was wicked at the highest level. So when we hear that Jezebel's operating here, we've got to take it seriously because what basically Jesus is saying is Jezebel still operates in the church. You know, and Vina and I over the years, we, we believe we've seen and, and you know, uh, came in contact with spirits of Jezebel. You know, I'm sure many of you, if you've been in the church for, you know, 15, 20 years, would have come into contact and you would have been able to just about say, yeah, there's a spirit of Jezebel here. The Jezebel described in the epistle to Thyatira seems to be either a real person with that name. And I, I don't know, who would name your child Jezebel? After reading the Old Testament story of Jezebel, like, who would want to their, give their kid that sort of a curse as a name? You know, you're going to be a wicked child. You know, little baby. But I don't think, I, I, personally, that's not my conviction. It's not my conviction that there was an actual woman in the church called Jezebel. But my conviction is that there was a woman in the church who operated by the spirit of Jezebel. But I could have been wrong. There might have been a woman called Jezebel. If a woman called Jezebel walks into the church, she's not allowed in. No. Say, sorry, go away, change your name, and come back. Yeah. Or we'll do something like what Jesus said. We'll rename her. Yeah. Paul to Saul. The Saul, Saul to Paul. Not Paul to Saul. Saul to Paul. Uh, who was, so seems to be either a real person with that name, because we can't discern from the scriptures whether it was an actual real person or with the name, or it was a person who was under the, the control of the spirit of Jezebel, who was associated, or it could have been the Lord's way of describing the spirit that was operating in a woman in that church who was receiving this warning. Satan's deep secrets. In the early days of the church, Satan's deep secrets came in the form of pagan idolatry. In later years, he promoted his lies through the philosophical Gnostic knowledge and cults. The deep secrets are coming in the form of uh, different cultish groups like Jehovah's Witnesses and, and Mormons and, and so on. They all operate under the deep secrets of Satan. One of the things that the Mormons say is that Jesus and Satan are spiritual brothers. The Mormons teach that. And they also say that uh, Elohim, who is our God, is the son of another God from another galaxy. And he's just the God of this galaxy. And uh, so, and then they also teach that you can then become God-like because Jesus once was just a child, and a, a human like us, and then he grew and he went through these levels and became, uh, or was received God's status. And so, basically, that teaching is the lies, the deception that you can become God. You know, if you know the knowledge of good and evil. So that's the Satan's the secret. It's not a deep secret; it's a deep lie. But it is a secret that they hold. Not, not many people know these things about Mormon church. So when a Mormon uh, church comes in, uh, to your door and they sound Christian, you know what I mean? They talk to you with Christian language. They come with that sort of... But there's deep secrets. There's a spirit of, obviously, a spirit of Jezebel that's operating in that church and deceiving people. I know your deeds, 
and this is the Church of Sardis. Let's read Revelation 3 and go to the second half of uh, verse 1, where it says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white. Again, just a few people that have not been soiled, that have not been corrupted. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The first thing that Jesus did was rebuke them. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. How would you be if you're that church? You, you have a reputation of being alive, but are dead. He exhorted them to wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So what, how I picture that is, have you ever seen a plant that you look at it at first glance, the plant's dead. But then you see this little bit of green right in the middle. And you think, you know, it's, there's a little bit of life in there. And, you know, if, you, if you're a plant lover and you don't want to destroy, you know, pull the plant out, you'll try to keep that bit alive. So you start watering it heaps and then it's always a real reward when you see that bit grow and you can pull off all the dead stuff around it. And, you know what I'm saying? Sort of, it reminded me of that sort of a picture. Wake up. And is that a, isn't that a, a you know, exhortation to the church today? We've got to wake up. We've got to wake up and understand that we are living in a time, or in the time of the end, the Christ Messiah is soon to return. The days are getting evil. The Antichrist is rising. And he's deceiving the masses. And the church is asleep. The church is, hasn't, isn't, hasn't got an influence in our culture anymore. The church has just about zero influence. Among Christians, it has an influence if the Christians, you know, are there and in Christ. But to the most part, you know, we're, we're losing so many people to Satan. Satan is winning the victory. He's in this, Jesus has got the victory, but he is winning souls. When I said victory, the souls that he's winning, he's taking to hell in, in the massive amounts. We know personally so many people that have passed away not knowing Jesus Christ. You know, could you put your hand up and say, I know people that have passed away without knowing Jesus? Yeah. Is that, you know, that should cut us to pieces, you know. There's a soul in hell. And, and I've always said, if you could just picture that one person in hell for eternity, well, it's hell and then a lake of burning sulfur because hell gets thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. So hell for now, burning sulfur forever. If you could picture that, and you could really take it to heart, you would be on your knees day and night praying for that person. Uh, if you could go back in time, you would have gone back and you would have, as you started as a Christian, you would have just prayed nonstop for that person for, the whole, for your whole life. If you could get a, a real grasp of what that person's going to have to undergo forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and it will never ever cease. It will never stop. Do you know what I'm saying? We've got to be able to picture that as Christians. We've got to allow God to wake us up. We can't cut that off. We can't say, no, God, I don't want to think about these things. No, God, I don't want to come to grips with my responsibility 
in prayer and my responsibility with the word and my responsibility with others and my responsibility with my own life and the things that I do. Because Jesus is going to come one day and he's going to reveal to you everything that you've ever done, everything that you've ever said, everything that you've ever thought. And all these things will, you know, you would wish at that time that you could just go back, and I've said this many times, that you could go back in time and live your life over again and get it right. But the thing is, is we've got this now. We can get it right. And this is the blessing of this great book. But we, we've got to not, you know, uh, wash over things. We've got to not ignore things. You know, in Matthew 21, 7.21, says that many will come before him and he'll cast them from his presence. I'll never knew you. And they'll say, but Lord. He said, you did not do the will of God. You didn't do the will of God. And so how important is the will of God? How important is obeying the will of God when Jesus casts them from his presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever just because they didn't do it? And, you know, you get, we get confused. What is the will of God? Well, at least the will of God is, this is clear. Read the scriptures. Pray. Intercede for the lost. You know, look for opportunities at, at times to speak to people about Jesus Christ and be a lamp on the hill. You know, good deeds, live a good life, good deeds. Amen. That's doing the will of God. And then there's more as you get closer to God. God reveals other things that he wants you to do. So wake up, strengthen what remains, strengthen it. See that? We've got to strengthen ourselves in Christ. We've got to just get up and, you know, do our daily Christian push-ups. Strengthen ourselves in Jesus Christ. And he's about to die because our deeds are not complete. He exhorts them to remember what you have received and heard. Obey it. Remember what you've received and heard the words spoken from the pulpit and the words spoken from brothers and sisters, you know, things that are from God. Because there's a lot of talking, but not everything's from God, is it? We've got to be careful of what we've got to discern. We've got to discern very accurately what we listen to and what we hear and what we, what we subject ourselves to, you know. The warning is if you don't wake up, and remember, this is not me saying this. This is Jesus saying this. I'm just reiterating it. Jesus says if you don't wake up, so it's not there's an option here. Wake up if you can rouse yourself out of bed. It's like, you know, if, if Jesus says get up at 6 a.m., get up at 6 a.m. Because there's a warning. If you don't wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time? And so what you'll be doing, you, you'll be caught unawares. You'll be caught not ready. You'll be a foolish virgin. They were sleeping, weren't they? Their oil ran out. They were sleeping. Don't let your oil run out. Don't be found sleeping. Keep your oil topped up and keep awake. Because we don't know the hour or the day of his coming. We've got to be careful that we are in the spirit. We're in the Spirit. We've got to stay in the Spirit. That's what the oil is. It's the Spirit. You've got to stay in the Spirit. Are we in the Spirit right now? You know? And it's so easy. I, I, I slip in and out through the day. Who, who's a bit like me? Do you know what I mean? You know, I listen to the Spirit, and then I go and listen to the world. And then I listen to the Spirit, and it's, that's lukewarm. Tepid. Not good for anything. We can't be like that. Amen? We're going to find out what Jesus has to say about a lukewarm church. 
uh, he commended the church of Sardis for a, that a, a few people of Sardis without soiled clothes. And what that's saying is without a, a sinful life that has corrupted them to the core. A sinful life. See, Christians still sin. Did you not know that? Yeah, it happens. We sin. But Christians shouldn't live lifestyles of sin. There's a difference. We sin in here, there, and you know, in ways that we shouldn't do. But we don't get involved in a sinful lifestyle and live it all the time. Because that is, in God's eyes, that's an abomination. That's like take because because we are we're not our own, are we? We're God's. We're taking a holy thing and making it, you know, unholy and and sick and corrupted. We're corrupting an unholy thing. So if you start thinking from the perspective that we're gods, we're gods, we better treat ourselves carefully. Treat this temple. We're called a temple. <clears throat> you know, we don't take we don't go into the temple of God and, and do abominable things in there. We don't take this temple into unholy places and do unholy things. We've got to honor the temple that is. Amen. Blessings to the few. They will walk with Christ. What a promise. Stay clean. Don't get your clothes soiled and you will walk with Christ in white for they are worthy. And we're going to uh, the Philadelphian church. Philadelphia Revelation. Who knows that Philadelphia gets the, the greatest commendation? Yeah. From a historicist perspective, it's the church from John Wesley onwards. Jonathan Edwards and, um, and uh, George Whitfield and Charles Finney, those guys, because remember, says that there's an open door. They've been given an open door. And, and the open door in those days was tens of thousands of people coming to know Jesus Christ. And they called it the Great Awakening. And it was such a move of the Spirit that uh, you know, the whole nation was shaken by Jesus Christ and no one dared mock what was taking place in the church. And it happened outside of the church in the first great awakening because no one let John Wesley speak in the church because the church was still corrupt. But he came and he spoke, so he went in the fields. He spoke more sermons in the fields than in the actual church. And tens of thousands would come to hear him preach in the open field before the days of amplification. He, just, he must have had a voice on him. He was a little guy with a big voice. And the Spirit of God moved. And it was an open door, an open door, an open... Um, you know, uh, pouring out of the Spirit on all people. Powerful, powerful. You've got to read the biographies of guys like John Wesley and Charles Finney and um, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. They will blow your mind at what can be achieved if you commit to Jesus Christ. So Revelation 3, 8 to 11. 3, 8 to 11. And it says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door. Let's go back a little bit. Go back to the verse 7 where it says to the angel in the church of Philadelphia, right? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So what he's saying is, if, if I open it, it'll be open. If it's shut, it's shut. You can't open it no matter how hard you try. And then he says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And so that's why they really believe that that period in history re relates to this period of history. And guess what followed that period of history? 
the Laodicean period, which reflects the modern church in so many ways, as we'll look at. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Little strength. Um, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth, the whole world, the whole earth, to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold on to what you have. So the promise is that he, God placed before them an open door that can't be shut. They had little strength, yet they kept, uh, he was commended for that, kept the word and not denied him. So these guys weren't very, uh, they, they were strong in Christ, but they weren't strong in themselves. They probably weren't very financial because the city of Philadelphia was, um, was known for constant earthquakes. And the actual place in about AD 17 was destroyed by an earthquake, completely flattened. And so, uh, it, and the houses were always cracked because there was so much movement. And uh, so people there weren't very wealthy because their houses, you know, had been destroyed and they were rebuilding and then they would all get cracked and there was these constant expenses. Therefore, it wasn't a very flourishing area because people were scared to live there in case another earthquake happened. So they were people of little strength and little means, yet they kept his word and did not deny him. The promise was that those false Jews of the synagogue of Satan will come and fall down and declare that I've loved you. And we'll talk about that in just a second. And the other promise is because of their endurance, God will keep them from the hour of trial that is coming. And now that's a controversial scripture. I want to have a word about that one. Um, and the exhortation is, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. I'm coming soon. I like that when Jesus says that. Hold on, I'm coming soon. And that was like 2,000 years ago and Jesus still ain't here yet. So what's he saying? You know, everyone who dies meets with Jesus. Jesus comes to them. I'm coming soon. So when they died, that was the second coming for them. You know, not the official second coming when he comes, but that's how most people are raptured, in my opinion, uh, right up for you know two thousand years so far. That's how they get to heaven. I will also keep you from the hour of trial. Now, the, the first thing to understand here is this is a conditional promise to those that are of the Philadelphian church. They were kept from. They'll be kept from the hour of trial. Now, does it say this? I will also rapture you. From the hour of trial. Does it say I'll rapture you or does it say I will keep? Keep you. Very different word. It's a Greek word called terio. Now there's another word here. Uh, the same word is used in this scripture. So turn to John 17. I think this scripture has been used out of context. Used to support certain views. And I, don't, I can't see it. It's not scripturally accurate to use that. But John 17 verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So that scripture goes with it. It's not that you, you get raptured out of the world. His, his prayer is not that you get raptured out of the world in these times. 
but that you are protected. Does that make sense? Yes. And the same word, terrier. It's like Lot uh, getting taken out of Sodom. He wasn't raptured up into the heavens, he was taken out. It's like Noah taken out of uh, the world with his family and placed in a boat. They were still in the world and they had to go through it, but they were protected. And this is the promise that we receive from Jesus Christ, that we will be protected during times of tribulation. Amen? Amen. Who can see that? Now, I should have added that to my sermon the other week, um, but it just came this morning, which I think is very valuable, very valuable insight. Laodicea, Revelation 3, 15. And it says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And if you read the promise to the overcomer, I'll give him the right to sit with me on my throne. Isn't that a powerful promise? Probably because he realises if it's a historicist view and this last period of history is the period of Laodicea, that the, one of the greatest promises to those who overcome is given to this church because we have so many more things against us. So many more things causing us to sin. We are wealthy. You know, these days it's funny. We think, oh, we're not wealthy because we don't have $10 million in the bank. No, that's mega rich. Wealthy is just to have food on your table every night, and a, you know, a roof over your head and beautiful conveniences. You imagine if you take one of these houses back to, back to the first century with a washing machine, a digital washing machine, front loader, and a fridge, you know, and a dryer and all the conveniences that we have, that would be like, this would be the best house in the world. Just one simple house would be the best house in the world. You know, with the, the kind of... We have it all now. You know? And we still go shopping. Work that one out. And women have a reason to go shopping quite frequently. Too frequently. Sorry. Am I looking at you? I, I, I really didn't mean that thing. I'm looking somewhere else. I always just open up the bank account and have a laugh. And I cry at the same time. No, no. She's, she's good to me. I say that like I'm speaking into it. <laughs> to me. It's for the kids. It's for the kids. It's always for the kids. Yeah, kids are expensive. And they get more expensive the older they get because they eat more. Huh? Oh, that's right. I, I, they really spoiled me on my birthday a few weeks ago. So I was very blessed. I got two coffee pots. So I was happy with that. And a $50 Bunnings voucher. Which guy doesn't like a fifty dollar Bunnings voucher? I prefer a hundred dollar Bunnings voucher. Fifty is okay. 
Um, now, see how we relate to seeing church, aren't we? Just talking about spending, you know what I mean? But it's just to get it in perspective. And it's, it's, if it is like the historicists believe, and I sort of lean towards that view because uh, I, I think the parallels are uncanny. And one day I, I should go through and show you what is said to the church and how it relates to that period, like the actual things that were going on in the church you know, during the Dark Ages and how it relates to the church that's related to that. And it's quite fascinating when you look at that from that uh, broad sense of what took place. But uh, they were rebuked for being a lukewarm church and Jesus will vomit them out. And it was interesting because the, in Laodicea, a very rich place, and they had loads and loads of money. Um, they were a very wealthy church and, and city. Um, the interesting thing, and I, and I said this a few weeks ago as well, is that uh, they had so much money that they wanted hot water, so there was a, a place not far from them, um, I think it was Hierapolis, that had hot springs. And then there was a place, Colossae, where they had cold, crispy cold water. And so they thought, you know, we've got all this money, let's just build big pipes, pipe that way and pipe that way, and we'll have cold water on tap and we'll have hot water on tap. And didn't understand that by the time it travelled through the pipes, by the time it got there, the cold water was lukewarm and the hot water was lukewarm, no good for anybody. And uh, so Jesus saw the things that these people were used to, you know, uh, were used to in their lifestyle, and he was pointing it out that you're just like that terrible water, which would be a bit of an insult. Because you could imagine if you go into that, get that water, and you oh, hate lukewarm water, you pour it. And then you get told that that's you. Worth just throw you, I feel like throwing you out. I feel like, and then he says even a more graphic term vomit. That's really bad, isn't it? That's very graphic. You know, I think. Vomiting is one of the horriblest things that we do. <laughs> and Jesus feels that bad about the, what's going on inside his tummy with that church that he wants to vomit it, spew it out. And that's not, that's not good. And then it also says that only dogs return to their vomit. <coughs> only a dog. And Jesus is not a dog to return to his vomit. Jesus will not return after that. He vomits, vomits you out. So lukewarm as a church or lukewarm as a Christian... Is not very favourable. He said, I'd rather you be hot or cold. The hot one is pretty easy to understand because it's hot, you're hot. But there's a couple of different understandings of cold. One is that if you're cold, you're against God. And he'd rather you be fully zealously against him or fully zealously for him than to be in the middle and don't care either way. And how many Christians, you know, I, I know so many Christians, I say, you know, um, you're a Christian? Yeah. So you read the Bible? No. Go to church? No. So, you know, do you, do you talk to people about Jesus? No. Do you pray? No. So they're lukewarm. They have the, the name of a Christianity on their tongue, but they're not hot and they're not cold. I'd rather have, they're harder to convert to becoming Christian than someone who's dead against Jesus and you can sort of outmaneuver them in an argument or something or, or at least the Spirit of God can come on them and then those people become, can be become just as hot as the hottest Christian. You know, Saul who turned to Paul was an example of that. He zealously persecuted the church and Jesus went, I like this guy, he's cold. I like him. I want him. 
He's got passion. It's better to have a bit of passion. The other interpretation of the cold thing is cold, um, cold water is refreshing, isn't it? I'd rather you cold and refreshing. I'd rather you cold and bring some life in, in that sense, from that perspective and that understanding of the analogy. You know, when, when it's a really, really hot day and you're thirsty, is cold water nice to drink? Yeah. So that, that's another, I like that interpretation, you know, of it as well. But you can take both. And this is the interesting thing about scriptures like that. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. There's a list. You know, you say that to someone today, if I walked up to my, uh, a friend of mine, I'd go, you know what, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind and naked. He'd say, that's the end of my friendship. Yeah. I'm out of here. <laughs> You've insulted me five times, and I don't need any, any more insults. See you later. Do you know what I mean? But Jesus, he, he basically said, you know what, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, so I'm going to rebuke you harshly, and you either... Reject me altogether and become cold, which I'd rather you to be. Or you're going to turn to me and become hot. Wretched, meaning reckless, meaning doing things they shouldn't do. Pitiful, poor, blind, poor, blind. When he says poor, it's not poor in money. What he's trying to say is you, you're wealthy, but you're poor in my eyes. And you're poor in faith. Blind, can't see. Another way of saying asleep. And naked, shameful. You know, blatant before everybody. Everybody can see your deeds. You know. So he exhorted them to buy from me gold refined in the fire to become rich. And uh, just let me check something. Now, I think I wrote a screen on it. I'm trying to remember because I did all this extra stuff. Yeah, I did. Great. I did all this extra stuff on this sermon this morning. And some of it, I did extra stuff after I put everything on the computer. We were about half an hour to go and I couldn't open the computer and make any amendments. And then I can't remember where I wrote my notes <laughs> because I wrote them in different spots. So there was so much. There is so much. Like as I'm just sitting there, I'm... Thought I'll read read a book on uh, on the seven churches just before I left for, for church in the morning, and probably shouldn't have done that because it just all this new stuff came in, and you know I could preach for a lot longer if I put all those notes in here. Buy from me gold refined in the fire to become rich. I have done a screen on that, which I'll talk about in a second. Buy from me white clothes to wear to, to cover shameful nakedness. He exhorted them to buy from me salve to put in your eyes uh, to see and remember that. Uh, Laodicea was a place where they used to make um, eye ointments and, and ear ointments. So eyes uh, helping you see better, helping to hear better. Instruction, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. See, he loves them. It's like that plant, you put this beautiful plant in the ground, you love the plant and it dies, or it's just about dead. You love the plant. You don't want it to die, do you? You don't want the church of Laodicea. He wants this last church to succeed. He's exhorted us to be earnest and repent. And the promise was he knocks. Remember this door? You know, open door, no one can shut. And, uh, uh, if he opens it, no one can shut it. If he shuts it, no one can open it. Well, he's standing at a shut door that we shut, if you want to see it as that way. Is the Laodicean church shut. 
or that church of that day had shut the door on him. And he's standing there rapping on the door. I knock, hear my voice, open the door. And I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. So he's going to sup with us, as I think the King James says. And that's an that's a indication of communion. That's an indication of fellowship. And he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. So he's basically saying you, you, you have to completely embrace me into your life. You've got to eat my word. You've got to pray to me. You've got to commune with me. You've got to talk with me. Communion just means to speak to someone. If we communicate, we speak. Buy from me gold. 1 Peter 1, 5 to 9. It says, you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. So when he says, buy from me gold, he's saying, buy from me faith. Come to me and I will give you faith. It may be found a result in the praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith. See, the outcome of your faith that you have to buy the salvation of your souls. Salvation of your souls. Revelation 7, 13, 14 says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, so this is the white clothes to wear. These who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. Now that's interesting. They're in it to come out of it. They come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and they're the white clothes so the white clothes that you get to cover your shameful nakedness is white clothes <coughs> washed by the blood washed clean purified and without stain wrinkle or blemish and it's got to stay clean amen that means you sometimes might have to wash it again you have to wash it and wash it keep it clean that means we've got to live lives of repentance and what does that mean it's not true that you only repent once at your salvation they don't understand what the word repent means Repent means turn. And if you're going in the wrong direction, turn. And sometimes you can be travelling along the path of life and you can veer. But you've got to turn back. And then you veer this way and you've got to turn back. You've got to keep on turning onto the path. And that's repentance. It's repent back, repent back, repent back. And we live lives of repentance. To stay in the will of God. To stay clean before him, washed before him. Isaiah 61 10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. See, garments of salvation. And arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So these are precious, precious. And he gives us these robes to cover shameful nakedness. Do you know what? In that respect, every Christian who becomes Christian gets that robe. That means every Christian has to cover their shameful nakedness. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace. 
So all have sinned. All uh, bear before naked before him and must be washed and must be cleansed and must be clothed in his righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own. But if he's clothed us in his righteousness, guess what? We will start to live righteously. There will be righteousness in our lives. Amen? Amen. And the Spirit will guide us as well. The last part of the, uh, each of the epistles to the seven churches is to he who overcomes. And we just want to talk about the term overcomer as from Scripture. So let's turn to John. Turn in your Bibles to John 16.33. And it says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. And translation says, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus overcame. And Jesus overcame. He went to the cross. No sin was found in him. He was the perfect, unblemished sacrifice. And by his blood, we have salvation. Amen. And we've been uh, forgiven by his blood. Now let's turn to Luke. So what's in it for the Christian now? Luke 10, 19. And he says here, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will hurt you. So we've been given power to overcome. Overcome what? The power of the enemy. What does the enemy do to Christians? He attacks them. Torments them. He can attack them with health. He can attack them financially. He can attack them mentally. He can attack them in all sorts of ways. And he can just corrupt. Tempting. tempting. He is the tempter. The great tempter. He deceives. All of these things he does. But we've been given power to overcome all of those things. One, a, a quick note, the church has to stick together so that we can cover each other through prayer. That's why you're always exhorted to pray for one another. Because Satan is, you know, he, he, he prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. He wants to destroy. He wants to destroy. But he's given us power to overcome. And overcome as Jesus overcame all those things. And remember, Jesus overcame him by the word. Didn't he? He used the word against it. It is written. Romans 12, 21. Let's turn there. Romans 12. 12, 21. It says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's another reference to overcoming evil, overcoming wrongdoing with good. 2 Peter 2, 20. And it says, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Did you catch that? If the world overcomes a Christian, because that's who they're talking about, Christians, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing, did you catch that? They knew Jesus Christ by knowing our Lord Jesus and are again entangled in the world. So if you know Jesus, and I've known Christians that know Jesus, they know him, they, you, when you hear them pray, you feel the spirit on their life, you see the, the Christianity in their life, and they've turned from Jesus Christ. 
And it says, this is a description, I've got many scriptures that say this same thing. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord, the Saviour Jesus Christ, and they're getting entangled in the world, and are overcome, so if the world overcomes them, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. That's scary. That's scary. They're worse off now. They're going to be far worse at judgment. Hebrews, let's turn to Hebrews just quickly. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. And it says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, once been enlightened, once received the, the knowledge of the truth, they're, they're like awake, eyes are open, ears are unplugged, they can see the truth. And this is how, how it describes this person who have tasted the heavenly gift, they've tasted. The heavenly gift, which is the Holy Spirit, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've shared in Him. They've had the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've seen that it's good. And the powers of the coming age. If they fall away, it is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance because they, to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Whew. I'll let you just chew on that now. I'm not going to say much more. Let's go to 1 John 4.4. 4. It says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But you know, the Holy Spirit is our companion. And we're his companion. We must agree. We must obey. It's about obeying his commands. We'll have a look at that. 1 John 5, 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Is that the wrong? Yeah. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out what? His commands. By carrying out his commands. And this is the love for God, to obey <coughs> the love for God. If you love God, you will obey his commands. Now, I'm, again, I'll, I'll emphasize, this is, I'm just reiterating the word of God from passages which aren't spoken very much about anymore. These passages are not looked at by many ministers because they feel that it's too harsh and probably flies in the face of their accepted doctrine of once saved, always saved. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. See that? Everyone who's born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You've got to maintain belief that Jesus is the Son of God. We can't turn from that. Revelation 12.11, let's have a look there. Now this is going to swing back to another doctrine. They overcame him. This is how the Christians overcame Satan. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's a hard one. I don't know if that would get preached in a lot of mega churches today. But... What does it say? The Bible says it. I'm just uh, God just reveals the scriptures that I'm going to bring. I believe 
that God shows me the scriptures and then I bring them. And we need to hear them. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Who, who's read the, and I, I know I spoke about this briefly a few weeks ago, or last week, or whatever it was. Um, who's read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Yeah. When you read through the Fox's Book of Martyrs, he also has some stories of people that became apostate, that turned. And it's shocking. You hear them that they started to endure torture for the name of Jesus, and then while they're enduring the torture, they give up the faith. And when you read that, there's another book called Jesus Freaks, and you read about these men and women that are tortured, and they give up the faith. Because that's what Satan does. Satan wants to make his, uh, the people of God apostate. He wants them to turn. And so what you've got, to, as a true Christian, what, what your heart has to be is, no matter what, I will not shrink. I will not shrink from death. And it says here that those that go through the great tribulation that have come out through death, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Is this a hard doctrine? This is the doctrine that most persecuted countries accept wholeheartedly. When they accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour, this is the stuff they accept. I can imagine the older call, you know. Um, when, you, when you're facing death for Jesus' name, will you shrink or will you overcome? And if, you, if you're not prepared to overcome, don't accept Jesus Christ right now as your Lord and Saviour. You know, very different older calls in those places. Very different type of Christian with a different mindset. And I've used this example before. You know, uh, when you, if you became a soldier and you're going to go and fight for your country, you better be prepared to die for your country or don't sign up to become a soldier. Unless you want to be a plumber in the army or something. <laughs> but you don't, do you? Do you, Jim? You must be prepared to die. Now, you hope you don't, and you hope your mates don't, but if your heart hasn't already settled that issue, don't become a soldier. And in a sense, to become a Christian, your heart's got to already be set like flint. I will not shrink from death. I will go forward no matter what I have to go through, what I have to contend with for Jesus' name. If Jesus tests me, in this, If Jesus tests me one day in my faithfulness, have I already settled that in my heart? So that's, that's the message I believe many years ago God was sending me to teach or to bring to the church, is a ministry of preparing the church for the end time scenario. Preparing Christians to face some of the toughest times they're ever going to have to face in the Western church. Thankfully, thank God, that the church has been relatively peaceful in the West. But it's not guaranteed to be because it says the times that are coming are going to be worse than anywhere in history. There will never be times like these that are coming. But in the meantime, let's grow in strength. Amen? Amen. Let's grow as Christians. Let's know the Word and let's stand on the Word and let's pray and let's get people into the kingdom. Let's do the will of God. And the last scripture, and I'll finish on this, Revelation 21, 6-7. He said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from uh, the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. So all the blessings come to the overcomer. Now, throughout history, people have died in different ways. People have 
lived for Christ in different ways. Some have had to face terrible, terrible trials. Others haven't. But in no matter what respect, God's tested them in things all the way and they have to overcome and remain faithful even in spite of you know uh, opposition and whatever has come their way. So they've had to remain faithful. And so in relation to that, we must have that same attitude. It's all about overcoming by the power of God. He gives us his grace so that we can resist the sin nature and overcome all the works of the evil one. That's what grace is for. Grace doesn't, is not a cover-up. Grace gives us the power to move forward as Christians and, and live the holy life. Amen? God bless you all. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for this time now. And, and Lord, I thank you for the honour of being able to minister to this wonderful group of people. And I, I thank you uh, for their hearts uh, and I thank you for the love they have of you, Lord. And I just pray that uh, every word that I've spoken today, if it's of you, will, uh, will rest favourably in everyone's heart. And Lord, I'm sure there'll be things that will be, uh, that they'll want to read further about and look into uh, in a deeper way, Lord. And I just pray that you do that in them and cause every single person here to become a Berean and test and look to the scriptures to find out if uh, maybe some of the things that I've said, if it is in fact so. And so, Lord, I pray for uh, wisdom to be given to all of us. And I pray for your Holy Spirit now just to move in us and stir each and every one of us, Lord, to, to go deeper and deeper into the Word of God and to uh, try to fathom the mysteries and the wonderful uh, revelations that the Word of God has for us. So I just pray your blessing over each of us this week. May they, everyone here have a wonderful week. Protect us all. Cover us all in your precious blood. Put your angels around us and carry us, Lord, through this week. And uh, keep us in your will and keep us uh, alerted uh, to your spirit so that, Lord, we don't fall asleep, but that we stay awake before you. Yes, thank you, Lord Jesus. We just praise your name. In the heavenly name of Jesus, amen.